Podcast. Let's talk about the weather. So welcome to today's episode of Oddcast. Let's talk about the weather. We have quite a big round together. We have Laura Goodfellow from the US. Hello, Laura. Good morning. Laura, we will talk about visibility today and you're the road weather application manager for, for the US market today. So you have a lot to say. Uh, I would like to welcome your uh, European counterpart too, which is Frank Sokol. Hi, Frank. Hiya. And uh, welcome Stephen too. Stephen is the sales manager for uh, the Dach region, which is Germany, Austria and Switzerland. So he's traveling a lot around our roads and knows our station uh, best. Hi, Stephen. Good afternoon, Martin. So you hear from the uh, greetings here that we start in an international round. Good morning, good afternoon. So whenever you listen to us, we hope that you find this episode useful yeah, and that you have a safe ride. Safety is definitely linked to visibility on roads. So today we will talk about how fog appears, how it ev evolves and behaves, what factors are influencing fog and uh, how we can monitor it. So maybe we'll start with the basics. And I don't know who wants to, who wants to start, Laura or Frank. Why does fog appear and, and when? When does that happen? I, I could start. Fog, what, what fog is, is usually small aerosols, small droplets in, in the air that are too light to fall down. And you can have that, for example, in autumn, when you have swamplands, river, lakes, any any water bodies nearby the road, hardly any wind, and moisture evaporating from, from that water body. And then the air being colder, they um, they they just stay where they are, just just above the water level. And then if there's a little bit of wind, a little drift, the whole fog will move towards the road. And it will stay there, and that also explains why why fog is very local. You have one meter where you have fog, the next meter you don't, but you hardly can see that because you're looking from the side of, of the fog. Another thing is low clouds. When you have in winter low clouds, that especially in the mountains, where wind is forcing the, the clouds into the valleys, then you have fog there as well. Something, again, little droplets and moisture in the air. Because the clouds can't escape. Esca there, especially, right? yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, caught within the mountains, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, here in, in Campton, close to close to the Alps, we face that uh, very often, that you ride through the fog, and when you get to a higher altitude, you're above the, the clouds or above the fog. Um, but when you're in the fog itself, it's yeah, it's strange that you don't see anything and then you have that great view. So as you said, this is very local and uh, this is why you need a lot of uh, monitoring stations to, to have that local measurements. Um, Laura, you are um, establishing or setting up those stations. Well, how does the, a typical monitoring station look like? For here in the US, we've worked on a couple of projects and typically for the 
um, Department of Transportation, they're looking at a couple of different parameters, including air temp, relative humidity, dew point, barometric pressure, wind speed, wind direction, as well as visibility and obviously the road conditions. So this is part of a bigger system. Um, however, we do have some spots where they're just visibility sensors. Um, so that because that's the key parameter and they're trying to really focus on that. So what's the parameter for visibility then? How is that measured? It's 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 a distance measurement. So typically it's in meters, um, and then uh, obviously that can be converted into to other metrics. But uh, typically we're measuring that in meters. The definition, Martin, is um, the greatest distance at which a black object of suitable dimension situated near the ground can be seen and recognized when observed against a bright background. That's the definition of visibility, according to the ICAO. Um, and we must also take in, uh, my, or keep in mind that uh, visibility is not only, of course, fog. It uh, can be... Um, pollution, it can be uh, yeah, a smog, which is a, a word of uh, fog and smoke. It can be uh, fires uh, like we had in uh, North America uh, recently. Um, it can also be a dirty window, uh, <laughs> which you have to clean. Uh, look um, at the snow parts of Europe. Uh, how many times do you get into the car and you are too lazy to uh, clean your windscreen? So um, this also is uh, uh, has an effect on visibility and uh, is very dangerous. Uh, of course, for the for the traffic uh, in general. When you talk about other um, phenomena that impact visibility, I was just thinking about a Sylvester event, so a New, New Year's event when uh, exactly. there was a certain fog, uh, but it was uh, maximized by by the uh, yeah, rockets and all the uh, fireworks that people were burning out. So I mean, this was before COVID. But the visibility was so low that the cars were slower than than the pedestrians. Then, yes, exactly. That's um, yeah. also something. And as Frank said, it's uh, very local, um, and that is also, of course, the danger that uh, you can't predict where where it can uh, appear, uh, and that makes the whole uh, scene, of course, very dangerous, and um, especially the need for sensors uh, very high. So Laura said that there's a mixture of weather stations, including visibility sensors and single visibility sensors. Um, what is the typical relation that, that you recommend to customers? So relation is set up of, uh, let's say we put a weather station every X meters, and in between we have two or three further visibility sensors. It depends on, on the on the hotspots. Um, if, if you have, if you know, there's a certain area where you always get fog because of prevailing wind directions or at least drifting wind and pushing uh, fog forward, then um, the recommendation can be uh, every X hundred meters. If you know um, this valley has the entry from the west and the, the clouds are coming in that way, then of course you would put the station next to the valley entry. Um, so. This is always very dependent on, on the local conditions on, on the area that you have that. If you have a swampland like like in Italy, for example, then um, and where they had in, in the past in the, in the 
late 90s, where they had loads of accidents, then of course they had to put down several sensors every other kilometer to make sure that they catch the, the fog. As I said earlier, it can be that the fog just drifts between the sensors and you must place them in the right location. So when you, I, I mean, I hear from, from your answers that this is very difficult to answer in general, and it depends on the uh, local requirements and the conditions. So when you get a request to, to, to set up a station network, what are the, the factors that you look at first? Um, first, uh, the area. First, to understand what are the conditions, the, the conditions on the ground, where's the prevailing wind, where's the water body, and how where's, where's it in relation to the road. And of course, then, then we have to see where are the main hotspots, where are the most accidents, is that down to the visibility or is there something else in addition? And based on all that information, you can then put forward recommendations on the on the station location. Where do you get that information from? Talking to the customer, usually. It is not that, that we have all the knowledge. We have to get all the information as much as possible from the customer, from, from looking at the maps, from understanding what, what happened in the past, and then we, we work together with the customer to find the best location. The customer, is, uh, as Frank says, the customer is a, a high expert in this um, uh, position and he knows exactly uh, on his roads where is uh, a danger of fog or uh, bad or poor visibility and uh, he knows best uh, what to do uh, from the past um, because he's seen accidents, he's seen um, uh, all the, uh, the the bad visibility coming up. Um, so we don't really have to uh, um, take any recommendations here. Uh, he knows best and uh, we just have to uh, show him what we can offer to to detect his um, visibility. I know here in the U.S. it's often based on safety corridors where people have had accidents and unfortunately sometimes accidents that um, result in, in deaths. And that's obviously, as uh, Martin brought up in the beginning of the of the podcast here, we are wanting to reduce um, accidents and increase safety. So I know there was a project that we worked on in Alligator Alley, which is uh, I-75 across uh, southern Florida, where there's a lot of fog. And I know um, in in Florida, typically they get that fog in the winter because that's um, when they get spring-like conditions for the rest of the world. And um, they they had quite a few pileups um on that road and that's why they were really looking to um, increase driver safety with some overhead signs some dynamic messaging signs and they were placing them about every 10 miles down there for that specific project so as frank said it really depends on the terrain um and and obviously just trying to put them close enough to um, give accurate data. Um, also, we worked on a project in Arizona. I know they were even placing them closer than that due to visibility being reduced to sand and dust floating across the um, state roads. So again, that was a corridor where they had to place the visibility sensors really close together in order to get accurate data along that stretch. So talking about those dynamic signs, um, I mean, here in Germany, we have a lot of them, but I, I understand from your 
um, statement that uh, there is a growing number in the US too. So how does that typically work? I mean, you have local stations, but how does that information transfer to the message on the sign? There's a couple of different ways to do it. I'd say the most common is the station is polled and that information is brought back to the traffic management center. And then in that traffic management center, decisions are made on what signs should be, dis what the messaging on the signs should be displayed as, and then they're pushing that message out to the signs. With the um, left system and our our remote processing unit called the LCOM, we do have the way to push alarms locally as well. So just depending on what people want to do, often we'll have blinking lights that are directly locally activated. Um, so it's very fast in order to get that um, blinking light there. But a lot of times the signs that are actually carrying messages are done pushed back from the traffic management center so they can verify what's going on with a couple of different um, other weather stations. Is that similar here in Europe, Frank? Yes, I should think so. Mm -hmm. um, again, we were using the same sort of hardware with a, a VS2K uh, with a 2,000 meters visibility range and then having um, the LCOM as a message converter and we, we put the message then forward to a central unit doing the processing and based on the visibility reading from the sensor, they then reduce or increase speed limits or reduce them. Yeah. You said that the sensor has um, a distant range of 2000 meters. Um, when does it get critical for drivers? Usually for drivers that have a visibility of 2000 meters, that is plenty. Um, when it comes, in some countries, they only go up to 1000 meters because even that is, is still safe. Um, when it comes down to 500 meters, um, then it becomes critical. And it, again, 5000 meters is where we do the measurements that can be somewhere else can be lower visibility. So therefore, anything anywhere between 500 and 1000 meters, um, knowing again, the terrain, the, the area, then speed limits should be at least saying something like, be, be aware there's fog ahead. And then when it goes below 500 meters, then definitely speed limits will will be put in and that very much depends on the country. Some, as in Germany, they reduce the speed quite drastically. Other countries are a bit slower on that. But again, this is down to experience and, uh, and the local terrain, yeah. I can give you an example here. Uh, just around the corner from Stuttgart, there's a highway called the A8, which is quite long, and um, there's a lot of fog there. And uh, as soon as fog appears, um, the unlimited uh, speed limit uh, goes down to 80 kilometers an hour. So um, that is drastic. As Frank says, um, you could be traveling 180 or even faster, and then uh, the sign comes uh, that you must reduce your speed down to 80. So that, of course, is a, a a huge um, increase for, for your safety because um, all these accidents happen because some people, they just keep on their speed. And then the fog comes, as we uh, previously said, uh, quite um, suddenly. And then we uh, are all very surprised. And uh, people then step onto the brake, which is the worst thing to do, because somebody who's driving behind you would then crash into you. And then you've got two car wrecks on the street in the fog. And that is, of course, a nightmare for everybody. 
Yeah, the, but you have to be brave if, if you if you drive into the fog, <laughs> keeping the keeping the speed is. You have to be very brave to do that. So it, it's very human <laughs> to slow down, and of course that that's ex- exactly as you say. That is the problem. Mm-hmm. Someone behind you is not there yet, hasn't seen the fog, and maybe takes a little longer. Is a bit braver and breaks later and therefore crashes in, into your back. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what I don't know how the legislation is in other countries, but in Germany at least, um, all cars have got fog lights. <clears throat> and what people don't know is that as soon as you put on the fog light in the back of the car, um, that is only to uh, be more visible. Um, and uh, then you should reduce your speed to maximum 50 kilometers an hour. Uh, many, many people don't know this because what I, happens when I put my fog light on and I drive 50, I get overtaken by uh, small little cars, uh, double speed, um, and they've also got their fog lights on. Um, there's no obligation to switch on the rear fog light, but uh, if you have it on, you should keep your speed at about 50. If not, you have to pay a fine of uh, around about 30 euros in Germany. I thought that was quite interesting to to uh, um, mention. And also, uh, what I also didn't know is, uh, but probably uh, I've experienced that many times before, also if you switch on your high beam lights, that makes the visibility worse. So keep them off, keep your normal lights on, and switch on your fog light if you come into a, a, a heavy fog. And then, of course, reduce your speed slowly down to around about 50 kilometers an hour. VS2K, how does that work, uh, Frank? How can a sensor that's based next to a road tell me how the visibility is in 2,000 meters? Well, it basically has two arms. And um, one of, of, the, of the arms is a transmitter and the other one is a receiver. And anything that is within the measurement volume that is below the sensor, there's a certain kind of volume um, any aerosol within there causes reflection. When light is hitting that aerosol, it reflects something in a certain angle. Within this angle, there's the receiver end of of the visibility sensor. And the more you have aerosols within the measurable volume, the, the larger the reflection signal is. Therefore, the higher the reflection, there must be a lot more fog, dust, whatever in the air Therefore, we can reduce the visibility. We calculate the reduction of the visibility or we have an equivalent on visibility towards the amount of reflection that we receive. So we have a local optical experiment that is extrapolated um, to that distance of Correct. maximum of 2,000 yeah. meters. Mm-hmm. And that's also why, why we have to install the sensor in, in the correct way. If you put it put anything within that measurement volume, uh, bridge, steel, anything, uh, barriers or any any leaves from, from trees or bushes, then they move and therefore they also cause a reflection. The signal also gets to the receiver end and then the, the sensible report reduce visibility. Okay, what kind of light is that? I'll, I'll jump in here. It's infrared light. And um, the thing that's important to realize about that is a lot of questions people have with the sensor is if it works at night as well as during the day. And the sensor is generating its own light to bounce off these particles that are in the air that Frank talked about. So it does work both in the night and in the day. So is there any other feature we uh, should mention 
about the VS2K and the VS20K? Well, yes, uh, there's uh, something which is actually quite funny. Uh, it's uh, called um, uh, ASD, which stands for Active Spider Defense. Uh, it's a built-in vibrating motor which uh, keeps the spiders off the VS2K uh, because um, spiders just love it uh, and they uh, try to uh, crawl into the, the little arms Frank mentioned uh, and this active spider defense uh, this uh, avoids this so that's a um, something which is very important just like also the waterproof housing and uh, the easy calibration functionality I would mention. Are spiders really a problem? Unfortunately, yes. Um, they uh, are really uh, attracted uh, by by this uh, system. Doesn't matter which system it is. It's got a, a certain um, a certain um, vibration which uh, um, attracts the spiders, and of course, the visibility uh, can be influenced by spider webs. Absolutely. One of the reasons why we came up with this active spider defense was, was in fact, because the spider webs reflect the light differently. And it's counterintuitive. You would think that they would absorb the light, but they're actually bouncing it back more. So you really get incorrect readings. Um, one anecdote about the active spider defense, that vibration, when we test these in the lab, um, you have a visibility sensors all set up and they'll be uh, vibrating at varied levels and it sounds exactly like your cell phone when you get a uh, a text coming in from somebody. So if you have this lab set up and people are coming into the room, they always think that they've got many, many messages because the, the <laughs> visibility sensors keep buzzing at this uh, uh, varied level. So we are heading towards the end of, of this episode. Um, but before we sum up, I wanted to ask um, how I mean, we talked about the parameters that you would like to in include in such a visibility weather station or a, vis a weather station that is measuring visibility too. How does a typical setup look like? So typically, I know Frank was talking about the 2000 meters being the parameter that people are looking for in Europe because at that anything above that is totally fine. Here in the US typically we're using a VS20K which is um, 20 kilometer measurement or 20,000 meters. Um, so typically here in the US we'll have a VS20K um, connected to a remote processing unit and again we might have other atmospheric parameters as well and then with a pavement sensor to, to measure the pavement conditions and that's all coming back to that remote processing unit that is um, acting as the hub that people can connect to to pull that data to bring into their system. Sometimes when we're alarming locally, we'll have a relay there, um, maybe some radios that are going to some signs. I know we have a couple of stations set up, set up like that as well. So in our case, you can give that all from, from one company, right? We are offering the whole portfolio here that you've mentioned. Correct. Correct. And that's really nice because um, within that system, I know we've worked on a couple of special algorithms for, for different states where they want um, maybe visibility as a concern, but they also want to include, you know, the relative humidity and the air temperature when they're bringing in these different parameters because um, they're concerned about black ice with a fog on a freezing road. Um, and they can bring that all into alarm on very specific para parameters. What does that describe black ice? Black ice is basically clear ice on, on the ground. 
So any anything that it looks like like moist or, or wet, but it's actually icing. And in relation to, to fog, you can have that when you have frozen ground, cold, and you have either clouds or fog drifting over that road. Then any aerosol will need to uh, condensate on, on the ground. And being cold, it freezes immediately. So you get wet-looking surfaces on, on the on the road that are very dangerous and then very skiddy. You can't break anymore. How thick is that layer typically? Uh, it doesn't need to be very thick to be uh, dangerous. It's at point one of a millimeter of ice. That is enough to, to cause plenty of accidents. Um, being a very closed surface, um, you you have no chance to, to break that anymore, and you can't break the the ice anymore. Being too thin, being too too strong, and and putting salt out won't help immediately because that again takes time or needs time to melt the ice. How do we detect that black ice? Uh, that black ice, we uh, if we have a fog detection, we know fog is drifting in, and we would then also require a certain sensor, in this case a road sensor, either optical or uh, invasive in, in the road, a sensor in the road that then detects the surface state change to become to being icy and therefore dangerous. I've read that, and I want to verify it uh, with you, that that people tend to, to go or to, to lean towards optical non-contact sensors when it comes to road conditions instead of uh, those pavement sensors that you've that you've mentioned would you verify that or or is that isn't that true sure i definitely see the trend to move towards non-invasive pavement sensors i know basically as we talked about safety getting things out of the pavement and the ability to work on them from the side of the road and verify communications and do maintenance on them from the side of the road is definitely people are are moving towards um, but we do have both the in-pavement sensors as well as the uh, non-invasive or non-contact sensors as well and I mean, there are reasons for, for both ones, right? So depending on uh, where you are, where you measure. And I'm just looking. We had that, Stephen, in one of our further episodes. I think it was episode two, Intelligent World Weather Monitoring, where we talked about the uh, different pavement sensors. So if you're interested in that, just click on episode number two. Um, other than that, I would thank you for this uh, very interesting conversation and uh, yeah, listen to us and have a nice day. Bye. Thank you, Martin. Thank Bye. you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Let's talk about the weather.